0: You got your Bibles open up to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, that's where we're at today. We're going to talk about Stephen's defense. One of the things you always want to do is you usually want to get the jury on your side. You usually want to get those that are judging you at that time to understand where you're coming from. And Stephen was kind of in that situation as he faced this modest, this unbelievable jury that stood before him. He had many a prosecutor. They were accusing him of blasphemy. He was going through so much of this time, and instead of worrying about whether to get the jury on his side or not, he went ahead and he just preached. Now, I'll tell you, when I was a kid growing up, I remember in school having to watch this movie, and it was a movie that was back in 1957, and it was a very old movie. It was called 12 Angry Men. Maybe you remember that movie. Very old movie. A lot of popular actors in it. We watched it in school, and it was of a jury that got in there, and they began to talk about the case, and as they began to talk about the case, they realized that the defense wasn't very good, and the prosecutor seemed to have done his job, but something stood out to one juror one juror held the whole thing up and as he began to describe all the things that the defense had kind of left out not really made known as they should have made known you began to see them one by one begin to change their minds that he was not guilty this young man had not killed his father it's amazing when you watch it you can almost sense that the guy that was the defendant or the defendant did not care about making it known that he was innocent You'd think that his lawyer didn't do a very good job of making it known that he was innocent. But when we come to this case, Stephen is not worried about his innocence. Yes, he's going to make a case for everything they threw at him. But he's going to be more concerned with presenting Jesus Christ first and foremost. He knew that this was his opportunity to show the crowd who Jesus truly was. So let's take a look at it this morning. We're going to look at four defenses Stephen addressed with his prosecutors. Now, we got to go back. In verse 1, it simply says this. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? The high priest as we, we need to understand, are these things true? Well, what's he talking about? Well, in verse 11, they said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Verse 13, they also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. This man has blasphemed. He's blasphemed Moses, he's blasphemed God, he's blasphemed the law, and he's blasphemed the temple. And every one of these, Stephen is about to address. He wants to show them that what you're proclaiming is not true, but in truth, you yourselves are the ones who have blasphemed. Let's take a look and we'll look at him talking about God first in verse 2 of Acts 7. It says and he said brethren and fathers listen the god of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and he said to them get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran and there from there when his father was dead he moved him to the land which he now, dwell. now what he's talking about here is he begins with the story of Abraham and he shows God's sovereignty in calling Abraham out. He calls him the God of glory, which is a remnant from Psalm chapter 29 where he's called the God of glory. He is sovereign over redemptive history. And so here, Stephen is declaring the same thing. This same God that we serve, this same God that we love, called Abraham out of the land and sent him to a place he knew not. Now, it doesn't sound like blasphemy. It sounds like he believes in God and God's calling upon his forefathers. But he goes on in verse 5. He says, And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that, this, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, says God. And after this, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave them a covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. We see a couple other things he brings out here. He brings out God's promise. In verse 5, he says, God promised him the land. Now, you got to understand, he had never taken possession of the land. Abraham himself only owned a burial plot where he buried his wife in. That's it. He really didn't own any land. God had promised him this massive set of land, and Abraham believed that it would come to him. Abraham believed futuristically that God would bless him, and we read that in Hebrews chapter 11. But then God also gave him the sign of the covenant. He says, and then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. All Stephen is doing here is giving a historical account of God's sovereignty in the land of the people of Israel. That God chose Abraham, called him out. And now he's going to move to his main point when he talks about God in verse 9. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt. And Canaan and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Amor, the father of Shechem. So he kind of gives this history And his whole point in giving this history of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and getting to Joseph was to show that they were rebellious. You say, well, what do you mean to show that they were rebellious? Well, look at verse 9. It says, and the patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Israel, 11 at that time, because they sold Joseph, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. He said, you want to talk about blasphemy? The history of Israel is blasphemous. The history of Israel is turning away from their deliverer. The history of Israel is to forget what God has done for them. He says, go back to the time of Joseph. Look at how God set things up. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was mistreated over and over again. In fact he goes into a house of Potiphar. His wife lies about him. He's thrown into prison. After he's thrown into prison he spends another two years there. He hears about the dreams. God delivers and brings him out of the prison and puts him in the court of Pharaoh. After he puts him in the court of Pharaoh he goes through this massive famine because it's a dream that had been given to Pharaoh. They go through a seven year famine and he stored up all this grain. He's done a lot of great things in preparation For what god is going to do there in the land of egypt and all of a sudden after a couple of years here comes his brothers They come right there to his doorstep now. I don't know about you You find your brothers who have sold you into slavery talked about killing you got rid of you Told your father that you died went through all of those steps. You might have a little bit of a grudge Maybe just a little bit But his brothers appear to him and he begins to set up a test for them And sure enough, they go through the test. And in the end, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And he says, guess what? He says, you didn't do this. God did this. God sent me before you. This is not your fault. God used that incident. God used those difficulties. And God brought me here on purpose. Joseph, in a lot of ways, is a Jesus-like figure in the Old Testament. He was betrayed by his family. He was sold for the price of a slave. He ended up being the deliverer for his people and he accepted God's purpose for his life. Joseph did all the things that God wanted him to do. But here is Stephen declaring and telling him already from the beginning, just listen, from the time of the patriarchs, you were rebellious, not me. You were blasphemous, not me. And that's where we come to the second defense and that is the defense of Moses, verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew near which God had sworn to Abraham the people drew grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph this man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers making them expose their babies so that they might not live at this time Moses was born and was well pleasing to God and he was brought up in his father's house for 3 months But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. First, we see the deliverance at birth. You see, Pharaoh had made a decree. The people of Israel were growing too greatly. And so he made a decree to kill all the male children. In fact, they would throw them into the river. And many believe that they were eaten by the alligators or crocodiles that were there below they were killing the babies in fact all babies all male babies were concerned or considered to be dead the moment they were born well, Moses' parents hid him for three months because they considered him to be a beautiful child is what it says, but I believe they saw that God had his hand on him, that God was going to use him greatly. And sure enough, they put him in a basket and they sent him on down the river and God rescued him by sending him to Pharaoh's family. And he was raised up in the Egyptian household. God delivered and he's showing his deliverance yet again. Then he comes to verse 23 and we see the deliverance was misunderstood. It says, now when he was 40 years old, It came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them saying, men, you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. You know, many people don't realize that when Moses killed that Egyptian, he was right then trying to bring deliverance for the people of Egypt. At 40 years of age, Moses had grown up in an Egyptian household. He goes out there and he sees an Egyptian fighting with an Israeli. And he sees them hurting the Israeli. And Moses turns around and he goes and he kills the Egyptian. Believing that this is going to be God's redemption, he believes in his heart. And you say, well, how would Moses have known these things? Well, you got to understand his mother got to raise him. His mother got to tell him about the promises. His mother got to speak life into him. His mother got to tell him all the stories. And Moses would be that deliverer, supposing he was going to deliver them. And yet what happened? The next day he goes out and two Israelites are fighting one another. And just like that, Moses goes to him and says, why fight amongst yourselves? The guy says, you're going to kill me like you did the Egyptian." And sure enough, at that point, Moses knows that the rebellions found out and he flees. And so Israel ends up for 40 more years in slavery because they rebelled. You say they rebelled? Yes, they rebelled. They turned against God's plan. They refused to follow through with God's plan. Even when God shows up in a mighty way with Moses here in just a moment, they still rebel against the plan. It seems like this is what the people of Israel are all about, is rebellion and rebellion and rebellion. And Stephen is bringing this out. So in verse 30, it says, And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of a fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Who brought, he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. He said, this guy, Moses, I respect him. I see God's hand all over him. It was your forefathers that rejected him. It was your forefathers that didn't listen to him. God used him in a mighty way, spoke to him in a burning bush. It amazes me when you look at verse 30 and you go all the way back to verse 2 in this earlier Stephen is showing them again and again that God appeared to his people outside the land. As opposed to them worried about their territory, they needed to be focused on their God. Instead of them being worried about a building, and he's going to get to in just a moment, they needed to be focused on God. So often, we lose sight of what God desires us to do. The people of Israel had lost complete sight of God. They were more concerned about a plot of land and a building that they could worship in. They were more concerned with going through the traditions and the regulations and all the things that have been described to them than they were about worshiping the one true God. They were more concerned about their history. And Stephen is pointing out in their history that God showed up outside the land and brought his people through. God was moving. He said, man, don't worry, but I'm not blaspheming Moses. I believe that God did great things through Moses. Just look at the 40 years. Just look at how God brought them out of Egypt. Look at how God parted the Red Sea. Look at how God did great miracles as they were fed with manna from heaven, as God brought water from a rock. Oh, I remember how God defeated the Amalekites and how God did great justice for the people of Israel all throughout the desert time. God used Moses. He said, don't say I blaspheme Moses It is you who rebelled against him. It is you who turned against him. And that's where he comes to his third point, and that is the law, verse 38, or verse 37 before we get there. He says, This is the Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. That's the forever deliverance in verse 37. I don't want to pass that, that would be awful. That's a promise from Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15. Where God had told Moses he would raise up a prophet. You know who this prophet he's talking about is? It's Jesus. See, he's taking all these Old Testament stories and he's pointing to Jesus. Joseph was a deliverer like Jesus. Moses was a deliverer like Jesus. There'd be one greater than Moses who is Jesus. He keeps pointing them to Jesus again and again and again. When I hear pastors say, oh, you don't need the Old Testament, I think to myself, they're very foolish. They're very foolish. Because you don't realize that the 39 books of the Old Testament all point to Jesus. They all point to an uh, an almighty God who has a redemptive purpose for every human being in this world. God had a plan, and God was showing it, and Stephen was preaching it. I'm going to tell you, as Stephen was preaching, you could see the people back there listening, but he's getting ready to turn the tables. He's getting ready to go off of the defense and go on to the offense because he wants them to see the truth. But he speaks about the law in verse 38. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give us. He said, I believe in exactly what God did with the law. God wrote it down on the tablets. God gave the living oracles. Moses was one who believed in the law of God. He's the one who wrote the law of God. He's the one who delivered the law of God to the people of Israel. And Stephen's saying, I believe it. I know it. I trust in it. I read it. I, sur- I understand what it's talking about there. I don't blaspheme the law, but listen to what he does in verse 39. He turns it on him. He says, whom our fathers would not obey. But rejected, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. No, no, no. I know what happened when they wrote the law. While Moses was up on the mountain meeting with God, You saw the presence of God, the cloud that covered the mountain. You saw that God was speaking to Moses. And yet even in the midst of God, writing down the law, your forefathers were down there at the foot of the mountain going, give us a God to take us back to Egypt. We want to go back to bondage. We want to go back to where we came from. We remember the leeks and the onions and all the things that we ate when we were in Egypt. Oh, we remember it was such a blessed time. No, they had forgotten that they were slaves. They have forgotten, they have been beaten because they didn't fulfill the making of the bricks. They have forgotten what bondage they were under in Egypt, and yet their rebellion wanted to take them back to their old life. Let me tell you, I see a lot of people like this today. People who claim to be Christians, but want to go back to the bondage of their sinful lives. They want to go back to who they used to be. The Bible tells us a parable. Jesus gives us a parable and said it's like the the seed that fell on the thorny ground. The things of this world came in and choked them out. In other words, they wanted to go back to their old lifestyle. They never produced fruit, and they truly showed they weren't ours in the first place. He says, you people, when right there, when God's presence was up on the mountain, Moses was receiving the law, you rebelled against God and said, let's go back. He says, you want to know who the blasphemers are? It's Israel. You want to know who's turned against God? It's Israel. You want to know who the rebels are? It's Israel. And you guys, he's getting ready to tell them, you guys are following suit. He's not about to hold back. But he uses a quote in verse 42 and 43. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Raphan, images which you made to worship, and I'll carry you away beyond Babylon. He quotes Amos 5, verses 25 to 27 here. But as a reminder of what Paul would later state in Romans chapter 1, that God gave them up to their debased minds. Verse 24 and 26, God gave them over to their defilings. God said, you want to worship these other gods? I'll give it to you. You can worship them, but you will not be satisfied. Can I tell you, you can worship the gods that are all over this world, but you will never find satisfaction in any other than Jesus Christ. Ever. All other gods are nothing compared to Jesus. They have no truth. There is nothing behind them. They are not alive. Jesus is the way, the only way, and he will forever be the only way to God. He declares it right here. He says, I gave them over to their gods. Let me tell you something. There are going to be plenty of Buddhists, plenty of Muslims, plenty of Jehovah's Witnesses, and plenty of Mormons that stand before God one day, and he's going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. But hold up just a second. I believe there's going to be a lot of Baptists that he says that to as well. Because if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and him alone and believe in the one true God who is Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins, you will be told, depart from me, I never knew you. Stephen wanted to make sure that they didn't rebel against the truth. He wanted them to know God's judgment was on them. Every one of us in here is going to stand before God one day. None of us are going to escape the judgment. And I often think about the words in Matthew. It says, we'll be judged for every word we spoke. How many of us are in trouble? When you think about this, Stephen was preaching and he said, listen. He said, I've not rebelled. I've not blasphemed. But your forefathers have. And he's getting ready to show them just how far they've gone. When he talks about the temple in verse 44. Our fathers had a tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place of my rest has my hand not made all these things? I love verse 48. He says, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. Solomon proclaimed this even when he built the temple. In 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 27, he said, you can't contain God in a building. Don't think that God is only here in this church. We pray that God is everywhere. Why? Because the Bible tells us he is. He's omnipresent. He's in every church, but he's also in every home. He's in every bar. He's in every place. He sees everything. He says, don't think that you can contain him. I love what John MacArthur says. He says, the temple was the symbol of God's presence, not a prison of God's essence. So many of us think that the house of God is the only place we can find God. No, he's everywhere. We come to worship together to glorify God together because Scripture tells us to do that. But you can find God in your home. You can find God where at your work. You can find God in the schools. He may not seem like he's very present, but he's there. The problem is, is oftentimes we have suppressed him. We have kicked him out. We don't want him there. And the truth is, is he's there. He says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Imagine that. Earth is where God kicks his feet up. That's how awesome our God is. And Stephen goes, let me tell you something. You guys continue to rebel against him. I don't care what kind of building you've got. You've forgotten who the buildings is. You've forgotten whose presence is supposed to be there. You've forgotten why you worship him in the first place. You are rebelling yet again. And look at verse 51. He just goes ahead and throws it out there. You stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So did you. Man, what an invitation. I mean, this is the invitation to his message. He doesn't say, all you who are heavy laden, come and find your rest in him. He says, you're a bunch of stiff-necked. Could you imagine the preacher getting up in the pulpit and going, a bunch of stiff-necked, uncircumcised, ungodly people? I mean, he's just shouting it right here at the rooftop. To call them stiff-necked means one who will not bow to God. One who will not give credence to God. One who will not show God the reverence that he's due. To call them uncircumcised of the heart is to say, guess what? You may have it right in the flesh, but your heart is far from God. You don't worship him. You don't love him. You don't serve him. You never did what God intended for you to do by circumcising yourself before him. You always resist the Holy Spirit just as your fathers did, but he just lays it on the line. I've shown you time and time again how the fathers rebelled. You have rebelled just as much. You have turned from God just like they have. In fact, he's going to tell them, you've done it worse. Because look at verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now become the betrayers and murderers. They killed the prophets, you killed the Messiah. They killed the ones who foretold the one coming. You killed the ones who they foretold about. He says, Man, you guys are in great trouble. Stephen didn't hold back. He didn't let up. He put the gas, he put the pedal to the metal, as they said when he was preaching. And he just let them have it with both barrels. Jesus told him this in Luke chapter 11, verse 47 Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets. And your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I'll build them prophets, I'll send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zachariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. He said, you guys, Jesus is claiming this. You are just as rebellious as your fathers. You are just as guilty for their destruction. You are just as guilty for persecuting the prophets. You are just as guilty. In fact, he would tell them in a parable in Matthew that they were even more guilty. In Matthew chapter 21, in verse 33, Jesus tells this parable to them. Here, another parable. There's a certain landowner who planted a vineyard. And set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and he leased it to the vine dressers, and went into a far country. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them. Saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He'll destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to the other vine dressers who will render to them the fruits in their seasons. Israel. You've killed the prophets. He sent more prophets. You killed them. You didn't listen to them. You didn't turn. You didn't come back to God. Finally, he sent his son, the one that was prophesied in the Old Testament, the one to fulfill all the scriptures that the Old Testament pointed to. He sent his son, and you said to yourselves, let's kill him. And you killed him. And what's he going to do? He even let them declare their own judgment. Oh, he's going to destroy those miserable people and give it to another people. That's what he did. They are in rebellion or blindness, as the book of Romans tells us. They are blinded from the truth. There are many Israelites that have been saved since then, but not a lot. The majority of them have been blinded, but they've had to be very humbled to come to faith in knowing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and him and him alone. But God turned it over to the Gentiles so that they might know the truth. God opened the door. God, God showed them that his plan was to save the entire world. They rebelled. They turned, they walked away from God and God is saying, you killed him, you did it, you betrayed him, you murdered him and Stephen is declaring these words right here the same way Jesus had declared it to these people and in verse 53, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. He said, you have been disobedient. If anybody is blaspheming God, Stephen says, it's you. Can you imagine? You're standing there in a courtroom and you flip the table on the judge. You flip the table on the jurors. I'm not guilty. All of you are guilty. Most people today would say that's insanity. That that's crazy to think that he could blame somebody else for something they're declaring he has done. And yet Stephen was able to reverse the tide, change the tone, turn them around and help them to see the truth. Now here's the thing. They had two options of what they could do. And we're going to look at this next week. Two options of what they could do. They could listen and turn and repent and get right with God. Or they could stop up their ears, stone him, and walk away. Let me tell you something. When Stephen was preaching to a rebellious generation, I can say that I too preached to a rebellious generation. When we share the gospel, we share it with a rebellious generation. We share it with a lost and dying world. We share it with a world that is even in a more sense, it seems like going to hell more so in a handbasket than it ever has before. When we look at the scripture, Stephen never shied away from speaking the truth, but showed their rebellion and truthful, we need to do the same thing. This world is rebelling against the things of God. And we have to stand up for truth. We have to stand up upon the word of God. Stephen never backed down. And here's the thing. We need to be willing to accept persecution if it comes our way. Because we're willing to preach truth. Because we stand up for God's word. Stephen boldly proclaimed it. My prayer is for us as Christians that we too will boldly proclaim it. But just like the people that Stephen was preaching to. You have two options. First. First. You can receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Recognize that you need to repent and get your heart right with God so that you can be right with Him. One day when you stand before Him in judgment, you'll receive His righteousness because He took your sin. Or two, you can stop up your ears, walk out of the church, and say to yourself, I don't need that Jesus. That's your options. But the truth is, is one day you'll stand before God in judgment just like I will. And the question that will be asked of you is, what have you done with Jesus? What have you done with the Holy One of God, the one that He sent to pay for your sins? What have you done with Him? If you can just say, I surrendered all, then praise God. But if you have to say, I have not surrendered all, then go ahead and take care of it today.